Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alarm, alarm. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, and with John McManus, of course. And John, we've got a super special guest today, haven't we? We do. We've got a special treat today. Uh, we have Matthew Delmont from Dartmouth College, who is the uh, Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professor of History, uh, which <laughs> speaks to his outstanding research, an amazing record of scholarship, certainly on, on the civil rights movement, on the modern African-American experience. Uh, he's the author of five books, and of course, his, his achievements go on and on. I could go on for, for half an hour about them, but most relevantly for us, um, he's written a book that came out in the last year or so called uh, Half American, which is about the African-American experience in World War II, both at home and abroad, and really, in a way, what is just so important about this book, I mean, I, th I think it's one of the most important books to come out on World War II in a long time, is that he's kind of revising our view of why World War II turns out the way it does, basically stepping back and saying, without the African-American contribution, there's a very good chance the Allies don't win. And so anyway, we wanted to just sort of welcome him in today. Matthew, uh, it's just such an honor and a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So Matt, I mean, John and I have talked a little bit about this, and we don't do it enough. And and you know, I I wrote about the uh, the Nine Night Fighter Squadron in an earlier book I was doing about Sicily, and uh, I was following the fortunes of Charlie Dryden, who's written a memoir about his time with the Ninety Night, which obviously became the kind of sort of first unit in the Tuskegee Airmen. And then I was looking at a uh, at a photograph the other day, and this was actually of the ancient ruins of Paestum in in southern Italy, and there's a whole load of Black American troops working at desks and, and typewriters and stuff within the temples of, of, of Paestum. And you don't have to delve very deep to see African-American troops pretty much everywhere. <laughs> you know, whether it's European theater, whether it's specific, you know, they are there. And yet they're just not in the narrative at all, are they? Absolutely not. I mean, that's part of what drew me to the topic is that I'm a historian, I'm a teacher, I've taught about this topic for more than a decade, but I found myself in the classroom regardless of what kind of sources I was working with, 
there are only a handful of stories about the black contributions to the war that I could weave in. I could talk about the Tuskegee Airmen. I could talk about Doris Miller, maybe get a reference to the Monfort Point Marines, the first black Marines. But that sort of larger sense of the black contribution to the war just wasn't there. It honestly made me curious. I want to know what more there was to the story. And it's why I started doing the research that resulted in Half American. But what I found is that they truly are everywhere. There's more than a million black Americans who are part of the war effort. They're at Iwo Jima. They're at Saipan. They're at the Battle of the Bulge. They're at D-Day and in the, the weeks and months after D-Day. And I think the reason they showed up in the story is often the work they were doing was the kind of unglamorous, behind-the-scenes, supply-logistic work, stuff that doesn't, it's not sexy necessarily, but it's how you win wars. And that's what made me excited to do the research and to pull all the pieces together in this book. Yeah, well, and of course, that speaks to, to the, the customs and mores of the time, uh, in which you've had, you know, about 60 to 70 years of Jim Crow segregation in a good bit of the United States, which is then, of course, reflected in the military, a military that's segregated on the basis of race. The irony of ironies, of course, you're fighting against homicidally racist regimes, doing it with a military force segregated on the basis of race. And so at the outset of World War II, there's this notion, which is completely ahistorical, that African-American soldiers won't fight. Where, where does that come from? Well, <laughs> where does that come from? It comes from sheer racism, don't, don't you think, Matt? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, so as John's saying, black Americans have participated in every military conflict the United States has ever been a part of. American Revolution, Civil War, Spanish-American War, World War One. But what happens between World War One and World War Two is the military really takes intentional efforts to push black Americans out of the service. And so it is the racism of the day. Um, there's a, a report I quote in the book, the Army War College Report of 1925, that's drawing on this outlandish racial pseudoscience, saying that black troops have a smaller cranial capacity, that they're scared of the dark, that they'll flee at the first sign of combat. And so you have that, and then you have a bunch of frankly, racist white officers from World War I who are saying that the troops they served with, the black troops they served with, didn't perform well in combat. And they're saying this uniformly about everyone, not just saying specific units, but as a race, black people don't have the bravery and the courage. And it's not just some isolated racist. Like, this is what they're teaching at West Point, what they're teaching the future officers that go on to command the U.S. military in World War II. And so it really means that the, the U.S. military isn't taking advantage of the full manpower, person power at their disposal in the lead up to the war. Yeah, and we had that luxury. I mean, that's, you know, what it ultimately comes down to. We didn't pay the ultimate price for that, but we could have. I mean, it's interesting also what you're saying about the African-American troops are doing, you know, they're everywhere and they're doing all the kind of sort of menial stuff. But when you make the point that that's some menial stuff that kind of makes the, the war succeed and, and makes the war, win, you know, winnable. And, you know, that's just music to my ears because, you know, we've had so many conversations on this podcast where we've said, you know, and I and I've banged on about the operational level and sort of said, you know, you can't just talk in terms of Second World War in terms of strategic level, high level stuff and kind of boots on the ground. You know, it's it's about the nuts and bolts. It's about, you know, how your supply, how you fight your war, how you how you make things happen. I mean, you know, how is it that the tank unit moving forward in Normandy can have a an engine replaced in two hours in the field? You know, just think of the the long tail that that requires, you know, from from the USA to England to across the channel to, you know, to warehouses to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, someone's got to, someone's got to work out where that all goes and how it all fits together. And, you know, here they are playing this incredibly important role. That's exactly it. I mean, the argument I try to make in the book is that World War II wasn't just a battle of strategy and will, it was a battle of supply. And when you view it from that perspective, it's totally the, a battle of supply. Absolutely. Right. And, and military leaders have always understood this, right? You, to win a, a war, especially at this global scale, you have to be able to move 
supplies and people all over the world. And so if you think about something like the D-Day invasion, um, it's the weeks and months after June 6, 1944, that really turns the tide of the war for the Allies. But black troops are everywhere in that period. There's a truck convoy called the Red Ball Express. It's driven yeah, predominantly so by black, black truck drivers. They moved 400,000 tons of ammunition, food, and fuel in those weeks after D-Day. Quite literally, almost everything now has moved to the front in that time period passes through the hands of at least one black American. You've got black troops back across the channel in the port of Southampton. They're the ones loading those ships. They're coming across the channel. Black troops are unloading the ships. They're driving the trucks. That's what makes possible this lightning advance across France eventually into Germany. And I think importantly, black newspaper reporters understood this at the time. One of the sources I draw in the book are war correspondents. There's a guy named Ollie Stewart I mentioned who was a war correspondent. He was talking about the miracle of supply and how you can't understand how black troops are contributing to this war effort if you don't understand these truck drivers and the cargo loaders. And so that's the that's the kind of perspective I was trying to write back into this history. Yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, you know, you think about the, the late summer of 44 and the fall, the Allies have serious logistical problems um, because they don't have enough you know, control enough harbors because also you've had, uh, you know, the shattering of the, the French transportation net in the transportation plan and the run up to D-Day and all this. And so the Red Ball Express is so incredibly vital just for keeping armies um, supplied in the field. And it's really just kind of a hand to mouth operation, but it has enormous stress on the the uh, the, the drivers, the, the truck crews themselves, wasn't it? Exactly. Because they're driving round the clock, dangerous roads in and through combat situations as well. I mean, so we can think about, and one of the other things I try to push back against in the book is this sort of a clear delineation between combat roles and non-combat roles, right? If you're trying to move supplies through <laughs> through combat, right, you, you might technically be in a non-combat role, but you are going to engage in combat when it when it finds you. Right? So that's part of what these truck drivers were I mean, were let's doing. face it, you wouldn't really want to, you know, when, when people are driving supplies over from the UK now to Ukraine, they kind of stop at Lviv. You know, but but you wouldn't really want to be going down to Dnipro, would you? I mean, exactly. <laughs> no, and that's pretty dangerous. It's a soft target too for the enemy. And so the, these truck drivers are navigating this treacherous roads, very challenging conditions. But it's what make, makes possible the the dynamism of the Allied supply effort in that time period. As you mentioned, the French rail systems and ruins. The Germans don't have the same kind of fleet of trucks to be able to keep up with the Allies' effort. And so it's it's the, the trucks and the black men who drive them that really gives the Allies eventually a, a supply advantage in that time period. Well, there's another example of where this goes on, too, not as glamorous or well-known, but in Burma and into China. Uh, because mm. about two-thirds of the, the American soldiers who work on the famous Burma Road, or infamous, whatever, um, you know, through some of the world's most inhospitable terrain, about two-thirds are African-Americans serving in, in engineering battalions and regiments. And, of course, later, once it's completed, a substantial chunk of the, uh, the drivers, which is, you talk about a stressful ride, a substantial chunk are also African-American, too. And, I mean, so it's interesting, Matt, because... I think maybe unlike France, in CBI, in China, Burma, India theater, there is a little bit more of an egalitarian spirit because of the, the incredibly vital contributions of these uh, engineers, but also Louis Pick, uh, Brigadier General, ironically enough, comes from Virginia, but is kind of anti-Jib Crow, isn't he? That's right. I think that's an important part of this overall story is that while the military is racially segregated during World War II and while there is racism in all the different theaters... Black troops described how important it was 
to have leaders, white leaders who respected them. And that was really the, the determining factor about what their day-to-day experience was like. There were thousands of troops who had racist white commanders and white officers, and, and they recognized that. They they um, resented being called racial epithets. They resented being called boy or by their first name as opposed to by their rank. In contrast to that, though, there were white officers who respected their men. Um, they respected their black troops. And the black troops fought all the harder. They worked all the harder because of that. Um, so I think there's a, a misnomer sometimes we think about these white officers that as a class, they were all racist. That's not true. It, it mattered a great deal um, how those white officers thought about their men and thought about the work that they were doing to help win the war. Yeah, there was a randomness to that. Yeah, I mean, I remember doing a lot of work on the uh, on the 92nd Division, the Buffalo Division, which operates in Italy, in northern Italy, in the sort of uh, latter stages of the of the campaign there. And it's an absolute catastrophe because all the uh, all the officers are white, and the general himself. What was the name of the general? Can you remember? Oh gosh, don't get me started. Oh, on oh my god! I mean, you know, he's he he was just a sort of racist pig, you know, from you know southern <laughs> privileged you know, arsehole. And I mean, obviously you're looking through the prism of, of kind of sort of early 21st century kind of viewpoint, but, but it was really hard, even kind of trying to put yourself in the kind of the times of the day to kind of understand why anyone would think that was a good idea. You know, there's, there's so much stuff about morale in the war. There's so much concern about morale and making sure that kind of GIs get their Coca-Cola and, you know, time off and, get to rest camps and all this kind of stuff and enough medical supplies and enough food and rations all the rest of it yet how can anyone not think that that's i mean i mean how how could anyone think that's a good idea to have a kind of sort of racist southern white supremacist as the commanding officer of the kind of first all all black infantry unit to go into combat i mean it's insane why don't people get it? Well, I, I just don't understand why that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, that's the thing that's most crazy making about this history is that in the we don't need, even need to look at it from a 21st century perspective. There's you don't need to, do you? Right. right? I mean, the the newspaper accounts, the the diary entries, the oral history interviews that the members of the Ninety Second gave. I mean, they, they quite literally said our officers treated us like dogs and like slaves, and they expected us to fight like Greek warriors, right? These sort of amazing right. soldiers. Of course, morale was was lowered because they were being treated horribly. Right, the, the number of letters that came across were these soldiers, these black soldiers, describe being treated as as slaves, as dogs, being fearful for their own lives, training here in the United States in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia. They were eager to deploy to the European theater and the Pacific theater because that's how scared they were to be on these training camps. They described being at war here in the United States with their white countrymen. So that's outrageous. And then, I think from a big picture perspective. Just the basic fact that the military was racially segregated, it served no strategic and tactical purpose. And it really took me working on this book to for truly process that fact. I mean, I've, I've taught my students, you know, the military is racially segregated. This is what it looked like. But when you actually sort of stop and think about it, how illogical it was. I mean, it was wasteful. It was redundant. It was inefficient. It was costly. And it was terrible for morale. <laughs> it was uh, outrageous to the black soldiers. One of my favorite quotes in the book is from Roy Wilkins, one of the civil rights leaders of the time. He said, white people would rather lose this war than give up the luxury of racial prejudice. And it's hard to find the lie in that because that's the basis on which the military really made that decision. A staggering statement. I was lucky enough to, to interview a guy called Albert Burke, who was a master sergeant in the 92nd. And he came from, he's in northern part of the US somewhere. I can't remember where. But... He said that when he was growing up, he experienced no racism at all. I mean, he said, you know, he went to school, he went to college, it was all fine. You know, then he got to the army. 
you know, and, th- and then he got into the kind of 92nd Infantry Division, and he said it was unbelievable. And he and and he was making exactly the point you're making, which is, why would anyone want to go and you know fight well when you're being kind of shat on effectively by kind of white officers who are kind of pushing you around and telling you you're useless and you know not as good as them. Where did he come from, Jim? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. Uh, it was uh, Michigan, maybe somewhere like that. Maybe Chicago, somewhere like that. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed him in, in Washington. He was living in Washington then and his later later life. But I mean, he just said, he, I said, said, what was it like growing up? You know, because, you know, when I used to go and talk to these guys, I'd say, oh, you know, well, where, where did you grow up? You know, what was it like? And, you know, what was your childhood like? And what do your parents do? And all this kind of stuff. So you, you talk about your kids and stuff. And I was, I was saying to him, you know, did you suffer from kind of any Jim Crow stuff, any, any racism? And he went, absolutely none at all. Not at school, nothing at all. Yeah, I mean, there are tens of thousands of soldiers from Chicago, Detroit, New York, who had similar experiences to that. They described going to these military training camps, and they would, would have to first board the trains. And when they get to the southern demarcation point, Washington, D.C., or another city, then they have to go to the Jim Crow section of the train. Right? They described pulling in these southern towns. They had to pull down the shades on the train cars so that white townspeople wouldn't throw rocks at the train cars. They were so upset just that black troops were even being stationed at these southern bases. And then they described the harassment they received both on and off base from white sheriffs, from their officers, from townspeople. And it's one of those kind of eye-opening moments that you can just picture what it would have felt like to be in uniform in the service of your country, trained, preparing to fight a war, but not even feel a sense of safety, much less dignity, in, in your own country of which you're a citizen. And then being asked, to, all right, now, now it's time to go to the Pacific, time to go to, to, to Europe and, and fight this war for freedom and democracy when you don't even ex- enjoy those same, those same privileges here. But I go back to the question that I was asking earlier, which is, why was this allowed to happen? I mean, you know, George, George Marshall's not particularly racist. You know, I remember when, the, when the Charlie Dryden and co. in the 90, 99th Fighter Squadron get out to North Africa, they, they meet Tui Spots and, you know, he says, you know, you'll find young men and pats him on the back and not a whiff of it so the guys at the very top seem to be totally cool i mean and don't seem to have these kind of hang-ups and these issues so so the problems it strikes me are kind of happening at home and back in the u.s and they're happening kind of lower down the food chain from the very top but why i mean obviously you know we know that um african-american troops see action we know that they're seeing action in northwest europe you know and all the rest of it and obviously, it is the guys at the very top are going, hang on a minute, you know, we need more manpower. What, why aren't we using these? I'm going to make it happen. So it does. But I still don't really understand why it is allowed, you're allowed to get into that sort of terrible situation with the 92nd Infantry Division, for example. You know, I mean, who, who, you know, who is it who's appointing Almond? You know, this seems to me like there's a kind of sort of maliciousness, a kind of sort of vindictiveness in some of these appointments, which is entirely counterproductive to the war effort. It's a good big question. I mean, the the best answer is the official policy of the United States at the outset of the war is that Jim Crow segregation is the the order of the day, the legal order of the day across the southern United States. That's 16 states have official legal segregation, right? And so it means in practice that black people don't have the same rights as white Americans do um, in terms of where they attend school, in terms of employment, in terms of where they live, in terms of voting, right? Think about a state like Mississippi. It's nearly 50% black in during the war years. Fewer than 2% of those black Mississippians are registered to vote because of, of decades of intentional voter disenfranchisement. That's how average white citizens in those states wanted it. They, they enjoyed... The, their position atop the racial hierarchy. They enjoyed that position of white supremacy. 
I think for the military, there's long been a, a tight connections between Southern culture and the military. A lot of the military officers and leaders came from uh, Southern families and had roots in the South, which is not to say that they all held the same racial ideas, but the, the interconnections between the Southern view of race and the military were, were quite strong. And so what happened was the military defaulted to the worst perspectives on racial interactions. When they're trying to think about who would be the best officers to lead black troops, their thinking was who can control black people or in the language today, who can control the Negroes, right? And they defaulted to, well, we want white Southerners because they know how to keep these Negroes in line, right? Or we want people who've, officers who've worked in colonial situations in Latin America or South America who know how to control colored populations. It was wrongheaded, but that's why they, they staffed so many Southern officers. And they genuinely think that these people, air commas, need special treatment and special management. That was the, the thinking of the day among educated Otherwise, very intelligent people. This is how they, they thought about it. Well, uh, and the other thing, like in the in the bigger picture, in the broader sweep, let's just think when there was change about how tumultuous that was from the 50s forward to, to George Floyd, okay? In decades of how much racial strife there's been. And so you're talking about when you're fighting a global war, an existential war, taking on really the most difficult domestic issue in the United States. And so the default setting, I think, uh, for military leaders is we don't want to deal with this. We want to fight a war. So let's just and, and you also have too this kind of competition during the war between the old hardline Jim Crow segregation hierarchy that really has the upper hand, but also a very, very growing civil rights movement. You know, you mentioned Roy Wilkins, Matt, and uh, and of course, then there's Walter White and, and there's a Philip Randolph, all these folks whom you explore in the book. Um, and so they're having an effect too. So you see this kind of clash and it's affecting then military world too, no doubt. We're going to take a break just now. And then when we come back, we'll continue with this. This is absolutely fascinating stuff. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, James Holland, with John McManus, and with Matthew Delmont. Uh, we are talking about the experience of African Americans in the Second World War, and actually, and I suppose what we're gearing up for is a little bit of sort of legacy of that, isn't it? And how that how that changed opinions, and did the Second World War help the civil rights movement or not? But one of the things I wanted to just just mention to to both of you is is one of the things that I found really interesting, and I've and it's really been kind of I suppose at the kind of forefront of my mind really since I started working on the, the the book I did on Sicily is you know the ally the western allies felt like it's you know the, it's it's a moral war right you know you you're trying to stop the the evilness of the the Japanese empire you're trying to stop the evilness of nazism you know that they are the force for god this is this is the crusade of eisenhower's book title and all the rest of it and broadly speaking, we can all feel happy about the Second World War because, you know, we're on the side of the good guys and, and the Nazis were the bad guys. And it and it's kind of seems reasonably clear cut. And yet, time and time again, as you delve closer and closer into the Second World War, you find yourself, if you're studying the Second World War, you find this, these these sort of really pretty awkward moral conundrums, you know, mass bombing and destruction. And I'm not not just you know, the you know, something like Dresden, that's an easy one. But I'm talking you know, and it's easy to kind of point the finger on that one. But I'm talking more about kind of use of artillery to, to destroy a town up ahead. It might be an Italian town with lots of people living in it, but the Germans there or whatever. And Soviet Union, the, one of the most murderous countries in human history, you know. So, yeah, there are these other. <laughs> so at what point, you know, to do, to do good, are you having to do bad? And and and, and I find it absolutely staggering that, that one of the big reasons why we are we, we found um, that the Western Allies in, in in the late 1930s and into the 1940s found National Socialism so abhorrent was because of the racial ideology. And yet, there is racism at the very heart of the United States in the 1930s and, and 1940s, and further back in time, obviously, and within the military too. I mean, it's 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 how do you square that one? That's what a lot of Black Americans are wondering at the time. They are. So they are just thinking, what the heck's going on here, chaps? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's the, the, the sense of hypocrisy um, is so vividly felt. I mean, people can feel it in their bones, right? That the United States and the Allies are claiming to fight this war for freedom and democracy. And anywhere you look for Black Americans, whether it's the South or even in Detroit, New York, Chicago, like there, there are race riots and racial discrimination, police brutality, the amount of sort of day-to-day racism and discrimination Black Americans are encountering this is every day in the pages of, of black newspapers, like the Chicago Defender and Pittsburgh Courier. This is what's on the, the minds of, of average black Americans. It's why they, they say they're fighting the double victory campaign, because they wanted to defeat both victory over fascism abroad, but they also want victory over racism at home. They see those as intertwined. And, and for them, they don't see a huge amount of difference between the Nazi racial ideology and the American Jim Crow racial ideology. They keep saying it's two sides of the same coin, right? Because it's, 
operating with a lot of the same ideas about who should be atop the racial hierarchy and what should happen to people who are not considered first-class citizens or, in some cases, not considered to be fully human, depending on who you're talking to. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I that I teach, I bounce this, bounce this off you, Matt, see what you think about this, is that, of course, you have these two sort of monstrous isms um, that, that have risen by the 1930s, communism and fascism. And the United States really is flirting with both of them on, on some levels. I mean, you've got your fellow travelers and your, you know, your hardline communists, and you've had the, the Red Scare, you know, 1919 and 20 and 21. And then you've got the eugenics movement and you've got Jim Crow and all this. So the U.S. is sort of like struggling for its own soul, isn't it? I mean, in, in that sense, I mean, I don't know. What do you think about that kind of interpretive construct, I guess? I think that's right. I think the... The question of where where is an average American sit in 1941, 42 um, is not at all clear cut. I mean, people are they have a sort of general sense of belief in democracy, but that means very different things depending on who you're talking to, who should be included in the in the us, right? Who who gets to count for democracy? It it matters in different parts of the country. It matters in terms of different racial uh, ethnic demographics. And I think one of the particular challenges we have in the United States, I'm not sure if it's the same way in in Great Britain or not, is retrospectively. Average Americans think everything about World War II is very clear, right? It's clear why the United States got into the war. It's clear why we had to defeat the Nazis. The thing that was surprising to me is getting back into those sources from 42, 43, average white Americans had no idea why we were in the European theater, right? They wanted revenge against Japan, but the the polling data and the the quotes from the time, people didn't know why we were fighting in Europe. They were largely ambivalent about the the Nazis because it wasn't the the tenor and the, the depth of the Holocaust hadn't come through as clearly yet. And so people weren't necessarily turned off by a lot of Nazi racial ideology because it didn't upset them in the same way that the bombing of Pearl Harbor did. I think that's what's equally important about the African-American cases because they understood even before Pearl Harbor why it was important to stop Hitler and the Nazis because they, they understood this isn't just a problem for Jews in Europe. This is this kind of hatred, this kind of racial ideology and vitriol is something we know all too clearly from our experience in the South. And so part of what I try to argue in the book is that average black Americans understood the moral clarity of World War II and the urgency of it a lot earlier and a lot more um, clearly than an average white American did. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the Civil War in that African-Americans understood the larger purpose of the war earlier than many whites did that it wasn't just about union it was about much more than that not at, not just any slavery but about race so here we have 80 years later many of the same issues played out before us and, and african-americans have a keener insight because they have to almost you know i mean john i was i was just thinking about the atlantic charter and the eight pledges Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, no territorial gains to be sought by the United States or the United Kingdom. Okay, fine. Territorial adjustments must be in accord with the wishes of the people's concerned. Great. Number three, all people had a right to self-determination. Okay, well, great. And the four freedoms. Yes. And then there's another one, which is, is that the participants would work for a world free of want and fear. Well, you know, you try telling that to the guy who's just been about to be lynched in Florida in 1934 with 20,000 people watching and baying. I mean, how, how can you not, as president of the United States, how can you not see the irony in that? I mean, or does he see it? And does he does he want a, a better world of no Jim Crow? But but he also knows politically he can't move that particular mountain. It's a bit like, you know, in the USA, you know, you the hot potato of, of gun law, laws and stuff. I mean, is it the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the challenge Roosevelt and any other politician faces is in two things. One, how far are you willing to push and how much political will are you willing to exert that gets you out ahead of your constituents. And then 
choosing or kind of forcing yourself not to see different things. I think on the first piece, Roosevelt, I think, understood clearly and rightly that a large part of the Democratic base at the start of the war wanted the Southern version of white supremacy. The the oddity of the Democratic Party at the time period is the entire segregated South is Democrat, right? So Roosevelt's in the White House in part because he has the support of the Southern segregationists. At the same time, the Democratic Party is now also getting a substantial part of the the black vote that they never had previously because the Democrat Party is positioning itself in fits and starts as the party of civil rights. So that holds together very briefly, but really just during the war years. On the other piece, white politicians, and this is still true in the United States today, have a long tradition of either intentionally or through ignorance, not fully understanding what's happening to black people and other people of color. And so I think with Roosevelt, it's hard to know where to draw that line. Like, does he fully understand how much actual discrimination, racism, fear black Americans are encountering when he's signing the Atlantic Charter? It's hard to say, but the thing that black people kept saying at the time period was, these words sound great. The Declaration of Independence sounds great. The Constitution sounds great. We want those to be not just words on parchment, but actually things we can experience in our day-to-day lives. And that's the power of Dr. King later, is he's holding that up as a mirror to America and saying, this is what we say we're about. Now let's make that happen in practice. And I think World War II is part of what gives such an engine to that because there's so many guys who experience that no matter where they serve uh, around the globe that it's like, well, the government is saying, we need you as an American and this is your patriotic duty. But you know what? You're not going to be treated as a human being or as a citizen, full citizen, once you come home or even when you're overseas. How does that make any sense? Like Jim has been grappling with. And it just points to there had to change, right? I mean, it's a, so it blows up in Truman's face as much as anything toward the end and after the war. How so? Well, you know, you've got so many returning veterans and some of them end up in these altercations uh, in which there's violence. Isaac Woodard is the best example I could give you. A guy who served in CBI, he's a sergeant, he served honorably, he's decorated, comes home, he's going home, uh, boards a bus, what, in Aiken, South Carolina, I think, Matt, and, and uh, you know, has to use the restroom, and the bus driver gets angry about it, and then there's this sheriff who basically gouges Woodard's eyes out. Uh, they they beat him to a pulp and gouge his eyes out. This is just outrageous, and it's not the only incident. And of course, this becomes a major cause celeb. And when Truman finds out about this, Walter White telling him uh, in a White House meeting, when he finds out about Isaac Woodard, Truman is like, this this just has to stop. And he, so in 1948, he, he proposes civil rights legislation and all that. And the Democratic Party implodes over this. It's like, I mean, isn't that mind blowing to think of? Like, Yes, it is. It's absolutely extraordinary. And, and Matthew, you go into Isaac Woodard in your book and others like him really illustrating this point. Exactly. That that chapter in the book is called Homecoming, describing what black veterans encountered when they came back to the United States. It was the hardest chapter in the book to write because I think we'd like to think that America opened up its arms to black veterans like other veterans to sort of celebrate what they had accomplished during World War II and to repay them for what they accomplished and help restart their lives in the, in the years that followed. But the exact opposite was true. Black veterans encountered violence and harassment in many parts of the country. Isaac Woodard is one of at least a dozen black veterans who were attacked or murdered in those years immediately following World War II. And these were reported oh all throughout black America in black newspapers. And so 45, 46, you see constant stories about these kind of um, lynchings or, or, or beatings. It was a very important turning point for the civil rights movement. Black Americans have been advocating for civil rights long before World War II, but World War II was a turning point because it helped to 
build up the infrastructure for civil rights. You had many more organizations form chapters of the NAACP formed all across the country. But then, John, as you were mentioning, that whole generation of black veterans comes back and they're, they're steeled for the fight. Right? They are ready to fight for their rights here in the United States. And the, the reality is for black Americans, the war didn't end in 1945. The military conflict ended in, the, the, in Europe and the Pacific, but the war here in the United States kept going. They rededicated themselves to fight for, fight for civil rights. And it was a war. I mean, it's it's an insurgency on some levels in the sense of what has to change because, uh, you know, civil disobedience, do you follow unjust laws, the, the segregation, the Jim Crow, all these things that uh, from Rosa Parks forward that, that people are going to be dealing with are in that sense legacies of World War II, I think. And because you saw these same conflicts playing out, one of the things you write about very movingly in, in, in your book is, you know, enemy of POWs, German POWs or whatever, eating at whites-only restaurants when African-American GIs can't. And right there, that is a very illustrative anecdote. Yeah, that's just that's just crazy, isn't it? It was one of the most common stories that black troops told, black troops and veterans told after the war was these Nazi POWs who were here in the United States had privileges akin to white Americans that were denied to black Americans. And black troops understood the outrage of that. They, they, they were were frustrated by their denial of rights, but also made them question, you know, where were we actually fighting the same war as as our white countrymen were, right? For them to be this chummy with Nazi POWs who just weeks or months earlier have been trying to kill other Americans, it it raised some serious doubts about the commitment to to democracy here in the United States. For me, what's so inspiring about that post-war period is those black veterans loved the United States and America so much, right? They they never stopped fighting for America. They fought for America during the war, but then they came home and they kept fighting for America. They, they kept fighting for a different version of America to come into the foreground. And I think one of the lessons we can take from the book is dissent and patriotism don't have to be opposing qualities. And for that, that generation of black veterans, they saw patriotism and dissent as, as intertwined. They recognized that the kind of America they wanted to be able to, to live in, the, the kind of country they wanted to leave to their, their children and their families, things had to change. And that required them to, to, to be dissenting from the, the mainstream opinions of the United States in the 1940s and 1950s. There is clearly a, a very clear thread between the experience of African-Americans in the Second World War and the evolution of the civil rights movement. There's no question. Absolutely. It's, it's going on during the war. The end of, membership in the NAACP explodes during World War II. Um, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, and I think you, you can trace it in a number of different ways. I mean, you can talk explicitly about black veterans who went on to be leaders in the civil rights movement. So like Meg Grevers is probably the most famous example. He loaded cargo for that Red Ball Express. He was just 19 years old when his port battalion landed at Normandy just days after the D-Day invasion. He tried to lead a group of black veterans who tried to register to vote in 1946 in Decatur, Mississippi, but they were turned away by a white mob with guns. And he, of course, dedicated the rest of his life to fighting for civil rights and voting rights until he was assassinated in 1963, buried with military honors at Arlington National Cemetery. There are dozens and dozens of other black veterans who were leaders in the civil rights movement. But I think even if we kind of expand the scope, we mentioned Martin Luther King earlier, he was 17 years old at, at Morehouse College. And as far as I know, he didn't have any direct relatives serving in the war. But he was one of the people who was outraged by the violence against black veterans when they came home. So one of the first published pieces of writing we have from Dr. King is as a college student, he wrote a letter to the editor of an Atlanta newspaper talking about how upset he was at the lynchings that were taking place of black veterans and how black Americans deserved to be treated fully as Americans. This sort of sense of wrongness was palpable to average black citizens. I think that's when we think about the 
World War II as being a, a turning point for civil rights. It's both the leadership aspect, but it's also a sense of this country has to change. Black Americans as a, as a group working with other other allies of different races were committed to making that change. And the sense of wrongness, too, uh, grows from there because already many white veterans feel that, too, who, who don't like the idea of all this Jim Crow segregation or, you know, some of some of these white veterans have served alongside black soldiers, fought with them, eaten with them, worked with them, whatever, but also the kind of larger white population that isn't in the South or whatever that didn't necessarily realize and understand fully what's going on. So I think one of the most brilliant titles of any book is Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And granted, it's a novel, but it's it basically sums up this whole thing that uh, to many whites, they really don't know what it means to be black at that time in some parts of the country, not all, but in some parts of the country. And so I think that's the momentum that comes out of World War II. Is a real ignorance in certain parts of the United States about what Jim Crow is and what it means and that, is, that it does mean that certain American citizens have completely different experiences. I mean, do you, do you think, you know, if you're living in Chicago, I mean, do you just not know about it? Ignorance is a tricky thing. I think a couple of things were going on. And people could recognize, so white Americans could recognize when cases of violence happened, where a lynching happened. I think to fully understand the system that supported that kind of racial violence, I think that's a thing that not enough Ameri white Americans understood. Right? They might see in the newspaper, this person got lynched or this horrible thing happened, but they saw it as an isolated case as opposed to understanding this is condoned because black people in those states have no political power to make it otherwise. In Chicago, it's almost like sort of culture is the water we swim in. So Chicago was a deeply racist city in the 1940s and 1950s, as was Detroit, as was New York, as I saw so many protests there. Part of what segregation allowed white people in the cities to do, though, is say, this is how things are meant to be, right? We, we get to control who lives in our neighborhood. We get to control where our kids go to school. It just so happens that black people have to live on that side of the tracks or in this red line zone, and they can't get mortgages here, and they, they can't join this club or, or work at this, this firm. Those didn't raise the concerns of, of most white Americans at the time, because that's just what they were raised up in. It's what they, what they understood to be normal. I think that's the, that's the problem with ignorance, is that it, it was so normal to so many generations that not enough people wanted to fight against it. But as John said, after, after the war, more veterans start to realize, right, and more average white Americans start to realize, this is wrong, and we want to help, help change it. Well, and, and also the country is changing demographically because one of the, another thing that's um, unleashed by the war is many African-Americans leaving the southern states, moving on to the northern cities, to the West Coast or whatever, you know, for war industries or whatever, and thus changing the demographics of places where previously there hadn't been much of a black population. So you really could claim ignorance if you came from Sacramento or something, you're like, well, I don't know anything about Mississippi, but now all of a sudden... Um, the racial composition of your town has changed and you're having to, to kind of uh, sort of face this sort of veiled segregation that existed in many urban areas, too. You know, like Matt had mentioned Chicago and Detroit, uh, Harlem and New York City, or whatever, you know, whatever. I mean, and so that's another factor. In addition to when you're in uniform, I, I think it's very stunning for many white soldiers who come from those backgrounds who are interacting with black troops and like, well, you know, why can't we just sit down and eat together? What's the issue with this? Or why can't that guy serve with me on the front line? Maybe we need help here. Or, you know, I mean, it's kind of all the above. And I, again, it just speaks to the influence of World War II, I think. God, it's just, God, it's just absolutely fascinating. It, it, it really is. 
Well, look, um, Matt, thank you so much for for joining us today. And John, of course, always a always a joy to see you. Matt, it'd be great to get you back on again. I know that Al will be spitting to have missed out on this. Yeah, I wish um, we would add Al. It, 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 it's just so interesting. And I think it would be great if we could at some point do a kind of, I don't know, maybe we could follow the experiences of, I don't know, half a dozen African-American truths, but specifically get it down to kind of individuals rather than kind of the big subject. Yeah, and Matt mentions many individuals in his book. Yeah, no, I'm sure. Maybe we could maybe we could follow a few of them that you feature in your book, and and we could we could look at their experiences because I'd I'd love to get you back on again and talk some more about this. Cracky, Matt, you've you've done this in such detail, and you guys both live in the United States, but I, you know, coming from as a sort of you know uh, an outsider, I suppose, I it, it just seems so mad. I remember finding the whole thing on the 92nd <laughs> Buffalo Division so frustrating. You just want to kind of bang your head against a brick wall, or that's just, for sure. It's just it's just so mad, so crazy, and so counterproductive, and just so wrong. But anyway, it's a. But listen, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, that's just been absolutely. Totally fascinating. Really, really uh, Thank you, guys. It was a great conversation. Always, always be happy to come back. Great. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, more soon. Cheerio for now. See you. <laughs>